Welcome to the SDG Talks podcast, where we discuss all things around the sustainable development goals and the roadmap to 2030. We are your co-hosts, James and Kevin, here to take you along the SDG ride. We hope you enjoyed today's SDG Talks podcast. remembers how quiet an oil plantation is. If anyone right now could do anything is to harbour hope, the environment and curiosity. Okay, there we go. How have you been doing? What were you up to today? Uh, I had um, started so early today. I think it just took so long. Um, I was doing the shot list for one of the sequences. Mm -hmm. in the series going through basically a single shot in the whole of that sequence like a hundred shots and then a description then the narration and it just it takes a long what do you mean a description and a narration so let's say the sequence is all together for that particular animal three minutes four minutes Mm -hmm. my shot list document has three columns yeah so the first column shows an example of what that particular shot might look look like Mm -hmm. Or a drawing um and then the next one is what part of narration would happen when that shot is on the screen shot as in like a photo of within a yeah, series kind of like, of video. Uh, so a shot could be close-up portrait of that animal or a drone shot or like a slider shot along the bottom so basically mm. every single different thing every mm. in the um sequence but it's just, it takes so like obviously you want to be quite creative about the narration, but it just your brain it, it's yeah it takes. It. <laughs> How are you finding it working from home? Is it okay? Yeah, I don't mind it. Like there, are, there's a lot of us in the house, and um, we all uh, I'm in my room now, but we all are downstairs on the dining room table, and we all like have meetings at different times. But mm-hmm. as me, Helena works at the BBC, so that's quite nice. Like similar similar sort of dynamic with various calls and then independent work. And then Fred, um, Helena's boyfriend who lives here is like, the best way I can explain, he is an inventor, I reckon. Like he's finished his physics PhD and he is making the craziest stuff. I don't know how his brain just works in a different way. Like it's so impressive. When you say he's making stuff as in like he's tinkering with machinery and so physics it started off with like a small um circuit and then now it's like apparently it's top secret so i can't say because it, it hasn't got paper yet, but it's okay. like blows my mind watching how that type of work like mine's very much laptop based written documents whereas his is like tinkering circuits crazy how are you finding working at home i'm loving it i actually went to the office today for the first day back so we're back two days a week so half the office go in two days or three days and then we go in for two days my department and it's yeah it's really enjoyable just because you get like a nice bit of socializing but i actually enjoy working at home because i get more done way more done actually like you know you don't have to waste time getting ready going there blah blah doing your hair like also maybe it was our first just because it was our first day back but everyone was just chit-chatting of course but um it was weird because i'm at quite a busy moment with work so i was like okay chit chat you know <laughs> you're right though it's nice having that morning time i found yeah. i loved oh my god i love the mornings so much mornings are the best do you get up early yeah really well not really how early is, how early is really early half six 
Yeah, pretty early. Half six. And then I have like, there's little things I like doing. I don't actually do sport in the morning, really. I might do yoga, but it's more just love meditation. And then nice little things like gratitude and like writing down every day. I've got up to two. It's not that good, but I've got up to two minutes, 35 on a headstand. Whoa. That's not that well. The handstand. No, I can't do the handstand there. <laughs> it's the next level. It's like... Also, I tried the, the headstand where you just have your like arms down and no head. You mm -hmm. know? I can't do that. I tried and I got a bit big for my boots and then collapsed over and it was, it was not that good. Wait, so your arms are like this, but no head. So you're like my friend. Does oh, it. I know what you mean. Like on your elbows, on your. Yeah, on yeah, your... yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Basically a handstand. Yeah. Same thing. You reckon that's what? harder than a handstand? Well, I think the same like musk. No, it's probably not as hard because you don't need to balance quite so much. But still, still tricky. Yeah. Really tricky. Do you go? Do you usually swim in the mornings? No, I mean I was for a time, but now I'm doing it after work. I actually way prefer it afterwards because it's like, yeah. it's like a reanimation when you plunge in. It's just everything washes away and you're like, okay. Whew. But in the morning, you kind of feel a little bit rushed and it's not as relaxing and you're just like, all right, I just want to get this done because you're in that kind of mindset of like, oh, I just need to get through the routine. You're not really taking it in. So I went this morning, but I much, much prefer to go after work. So I think I'll do that tomorrow. Um, so you went for a swim as well. Where did you go? Oh, I'm so happy. Yes, I was. So I went, well, we went cycling. I've just bought a new bike. Like a racing bike? Um, I'm picking it up on Saturday, but at the moment I borrowed one of my housemates' bikes. He's really into cycling, so I borrowed his. Mm. Um, <clears throat> and it's just like completely opened my heart to cycling. Like before that, I had an okay bike, a road bike, but it was you're in a completely different posture to the one <clears throat> with the bike. And mm -hmm. you just, honestly, I just feel like a swan on a bike. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I keep saying that to me. I feel like a swan. Um, but I went, it was. 40 miles, so quite a nice big cycle to mm -hmm. Clifton, um, which And then swim and then back, cycle back. Yeah. That's really far. Uh, 40 miles altogether, I think. Okay. Yeah. okay, yeah. 40 miles altogether. So, um, but it's funny because I got pretty cold um, on the way there. So I didn't really take that much clothes. Yes, it was quite pretty grey and rainy, but I um, mm. went there, got in, and then it was so weird because the temperature has gone up so much since I last went swimming like when I last went in I think it was five or six and now it said 14. 14 whoa. whoa that's hot it's like nine eight and a half here nine degrees here and I can feel it's kind of warm 14 must be roasting you don't even really feel anything you're getting you're like wait what where's that initial you need to, you need to just like dive deep right you need to just go right to the bottom and like this place oh I wish I could show you this place it's just every single time I got like how many years I've gone there now Every single time I'm just kind of, it sounds so crazy, but I'm blown away that there's this huge 500 meter length green mm. lake that fills up with the tide that has the sunset come over. That's completely free. Like, yeah, that's cool. That's really cool. You just see so many people of all different ages going, well, back when there are more people. It's just such a beautiful thing to have that they don't try and make money of. Like, mm. just people love it and Oh, I don't know. It's and so that it fills up with the tide. That's actually really quite, really quite nice. And you can't see it from where you, where the road is. So you park or you park your bike, and then you go up to this wall, and then you have no idea. You can just see the sky, and then once you get to the wall, then you look over, and there's this huge marine lake in the sea. And sometimes it's like 
so wavy and and really rough and then other times it's like a big infinity pool and yeah, okay and you could just uh, i'm sure i've shown you I've yeah, shown i have you. actually seen it on your instagram i think another one i think another one yeah but Dea, the reason why I wanted to speak to you tonight was because of your your wildlife conservation. <laughs> so I really would like to know, I mean, you are an enormous advocate of wildlife conservation and you took your master's degree in wildlife filmmaking and you champion various causes, conservation causes in Bristol. But your biggest idol is the orangutan. And I know that you ran the London Marathon dressed as an orangutan. So I want you to tell me why you're so fascinated by this animal and what makes it so special to you. So it's a funny one because when so much of what you do is orientated around one animal, I did ask myself a few years ago, like, hang on, trying to relay what it was, that initial thing that um, made me so fond of them. Um, and I think two things that are quite interesting. The first one's quite sweet. And then the next one is the real reason, I think. So when I was about, um, I don't know, maybe like six years old, for my birthday, someone at school gave me a toy orangutan. Like a I've actually got it in my room right now. Um, and I have just had that ever since. And, and though that's a really small thing, what's what I really love is two very big idols of mine, Jane Goodall and Ian Redmond both still to this day have the toy animal when they were very 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 young that they then went on to um, study and be a huge advocate of so Ian Redmond with this um, elephant and Jane Goodall with a toy chimpanzee so I thought that was quite a sweet thing I only realized that a few years ago mm. um, but more sort of deep-rooted was when again when I was younger there was this article I read um, and it again was by Jane Goodall, who mainly specializes in chimpanzees as opposed to orangutans. But um, we'll get on to the link there a bit later. But she, at this moment in time, was um, following a female orangutan. And um, it proceeded to climb up a tree and then attempt to grab another branch. And um, she relays that as it grabbed that branch, either it was a dead branch or it couldn't really hold her weight. And the orangutan from this great, great, great height um, fell right to the floor. And um, it brushed itself off. It was not too injured, got back up and started climbing up the tree, mm -hmm. which other primates, many other animals might show some form of not aggression, but panic or, you know, sort of a slight agitated yeah. behavior. Yeah. But this orangutan climbed back up with the bit of branch I'd fallen off and tried to stick it back into the tree. <laughs> I just thought when I heard that, when I was young, I thought, oh my God, that to me just sums up so much their harmony, yeah. the environment, like the way that they're just so calm, their disposition and they're just, yeah, the harmony, I think, with the natural world and particularly trees, I really admire. Completely, completely. And then I think from there, it kind of just, it shifted. Well, I'm sure we can get on to talking about that later. But for the first half of my life, I suppose I would say that it was more a love and a sort of admiration of this species. Well, all three of them. Um, and then shortly after that, it, it switched to more of a mission. I suppose you could say mm. mission is the wrong word. It, more like... Um, what I saw, which I'm sure you know, we'll talk about later, but um, it, there was a shift from seeing something on a pedestal, like wow, as a spectator, wow, this animal is so amazing. To whoa, 
I fully agree. I, I mean, I'm fully aware of what I've seen. I need to do what I can now to share what I've seen. Mm-hmm. And would you say that that kind of when you are you talking about your experience of when you actually went to Borneo? Because I know I know for your master's thesis, you spent several months, eight months living in the Bornean rainforests and you were shooting a wildlife documentary about orangutans. Um, was that the kind of, was it during that experience you mean or something before? And maybe you could also tell us a bit more about that experience. Oh. Yeah, so the, the shift I think that I was trying to explain was when I was studying zoology, I obviously still then orangutans were this animal that I always thought about and and sounds again a little silly but when I was younger I made this list of things that I wanted to do in my life um, mm. included like find a four-leaf clover find a message in a bottle <laughs> um, meet another person called Dan. I remember them all I'm acting <laughs> uh, find a pearl in an oyster and surprisingly I've got half of them done like I found seven four-leaf clovers I'm still going to for asking <laughs> I found actually the location in Cornwall where you can find pearls and oysters so mm. Anyway, but above all of these, the top one was always, 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 always see orangutans in the wild. Mm-hmm. I didn't take a year out um, studying at university. My degree was three years and I thought this would be a really good time to utilize the science side of what I had, but also the time that I could volunteer and put some of what I've learned to practice. So I just um, tried to apply for this communications role in um, Kalimantan, so Indonesian Borneo, um, where I would be working for working for this um, scientist called Brute Galdikas, um, who is alongside Jane Goodall and another lady called Diane Fossier, the three trimates, who um, many, many years ago, um, an anthropologist called Louis Leakey assigned three women to go and do long-term research on these three great apes, gorillas, chimpanzees and orangutans. Mm-hmm. And since then, 50 years on, Barute Galdikas is still in Borneo. <laughs> um, and still doing research, still rescuing, translocating, all of, all of this stuff. And that initial trip, um, I went there for um, a number of months, the best part of a year, in fact, to uh, do the communications for this area where there was no internet. So my days revolved around following um, rescues which didn't just uh was not just limited to orangutans it was also clouded leopards sun bears proboscis monkeys many many different animals um what i've watched um cats being pried out of pythons seven meter long pythons mouths (laughs) anyway there are many many sort of rogue stories in short my role there was to act as the middle person between all that was going on in um, this small Dayak village where there was a um, care centre for the orangutans mm-hmm. um, to relay that information to the office in Los Angeles where they would then share it with the um, globally. Okay, right. And so it was there that I was seeing these things. Uh, well, yeah, I, I could ramble on for a long time, but basically there was a huge uh, bittersweet conflict within me at that time where something that I thought I'd maybe achieve when I was 40, 50 years old and seeing orangutans for the first time I was doing age 20 or 21, mm-hmm. um, I think, or yeah, 20. Um, but so it was this thing that I had always put at the top of anything I wanted to achieve in my life. Yeah. I was doing it was it. the end goal. This thing that ever since you were a little person had been wanting to think and dreaming about, you're, you're actually doing it. Um, mm-hmm. 
And so on a personal level, it was hugely rewarding and happy and emotional. But then at the same time, you were seeing every single day what was going on to this um, species and very sobering situations, not just to them, but their, the habitat that they're, you know, that they need and that they're in disharmony with. Um, and so it was this clash, really, every day of, of, of those two things. Um, and then I thought when I got back, I just had to make a film about this and tell a story on a personal level, not my story, because I've been there a year, but, but someone that knows these animals better than anything, knows this forest better than anything, um, from his eyes and the eyes of this uh, certain orangutan. Um, and so, yeah, I went back to make my thesis film about a relationship between a man and orangutan there. Yeah, well, that was epic. I really, really enjoyed that. So I'll add that into the description below for anyone listening who'd like to watch. And what, I mean, of course, we know that deforestation is the big cause for the loss of ha habitat, but what were the drivers behind the deforestation? I mean, what is it that's pushing this? Well, I think the first encounter that I had seen palm oil um, was mm -hmm. driving along to get my visa renewed in a, in the back of a truck and seeing this kind of intriguing looking forest where the, the palms were all covered in moss. Mm. It looked kind of, I don't know, like from a fairy tale. And then I realized the more that you looked, actually every single trunk was eerily directly in front of the other. Mm -hmm. and instead, this natural landscape didn't look natural at all. And mm -hmm. it was the thing I'll always remember is how quiet and a oil palm plantation is there's like just no noise whatsoever compared to being in the middle of a peatland swamp forest and you maybe send a voice note and which mm -hmm. doesn't send because there's no signal but then you listen back to it later and it's just screeching with cicadas and gibbons and wood mm -hmm. and everything mm -hmm. it sounds a bit like a graveyard when you describe it just yeah. headstones in a row and no noise yeah just eerie and i mean the so one of the major driving forces right now to what's happening is um, oil palm. And, but what I would say before I go into any of that is the situation is so complex. And through work and through research and through learning about it more, speaking to you know, experts within this area, not just those who are against oil palm, but who are mm -hmm. looking into sustainable palm oil. What I've come to my conclusion is that the situation is so complex right. there's no one side and also that um oil palm itself palm oil is not the is not the evil thing in this mm. the way that it's sourced and the way that it's manufactured okay. an oil it's highly efficient you can get 10 times more sorry other oil alternatives take up 10 times more land than okay. palm oil um, you know, it's there are a number of positives linked to it, but it's just completely obliterating the landscapes there. Mm -hmm. We would drive five, six hours through a palm oil plantation. Wow. To get, so if there was an area, let's say, if you put your hands together and have a diamond shape, we were crossing the top, top, top tip of that to get to a location where we were um, translocating an orangutan. And even mm -hmm. through that top narrow width, took four or five hours to drive at full speed across oh and is this is this just 
this takeover of the forest just happening at an accelerated pace or is it slowing down? What would you say is the situation now? So I think um, there are a lot of, there's a lot of variables. So the push for sustainable palm oil is getting better. Mm -hmm. um, also, I would say that um, another thing that I find quite upsetting is the one negative, and then I'll go to the positive, but linked to palm oil is the um, land ownership conflict. So many people who have had ownership for certain areas of land for generations and generations have no tangible proof that this is their this is their land. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to proof of ownership, that's the really upsetting part when it just gets taken from them. But on the whole, um, so there we are learning more and you know there's more conversation now about sustainable palm oil, but even that has areas that are slightly nebulous. And um, what I would say for that is that the RSPO, Certified Sustainable Palm Oil, mm -hmm. um, labels certain palm oil as sustainable mm. um, if it follows one of, I think it's four or five criteria. So one of those rankings of, of the thing, so basically there are certain rankings that a, uh, a company might have that then they can have the stamp of Certified Sustainable Palm Oil mm -hmm. from RSPO. One of which is, yeah, totally sustainable. Their workers are paid fairly. Um, it's only on degraded land. There's no illegal look, you know, all of that stuff. They follow all of those things. Mm. But the other three are not nearly, in my eyes, worthy of being called sustainable. One of which is there is an unknown ratio. Some of the palm oil that this company uses is from a sustainable palm oil source. But the other is from, you know, smaller um, holders and it's all mixed together. So they have no idea how much the ratio is. That's still labeled as the first ranking. And another one is they're not actually sustainable. They're not performing sustainable practices, but they're on board with the idea. So they donate a bit of money each year, for example, maybe um, a boat to an NGO who needs to access a certain area along the river. Right, okay. Their manufacturing is not sustainable, but they're showing to be on board with it. And yet all of those are still under the same umbrella as sustainable. Um, but, but yeah, so I think palm oil is a major one, um, though I, but I do think that with the use of certain, certain, how do you, so basically Go Global Canopy Program mm -hmm. is a think tank based in the UK. Um, I'm very good friends with um, Andrew Mitchell, who is the um, sort of founder of it, and his daughter actually is my closest friend. Mm -hmm. um, but basically, what I really like about that company is they, that think tank is that, in fact, is they are prioritizing traceability. Right. And whether we're talking about pulp and paper, which is a huge thing, and that um, linked to deforestation in Indonesia, um, pulp with, vis I mean, there's links with that with viscose, which is in clothes mainly coming from fast fashion mm -hmm. whether we're talking about rubber whether we're talking about soy whether we're talking any of these things linked to deforestation what global canopy program do is they um hold these companies the uh i think it's the forest yeah the 500 major contributors of tropical deforestation mm -hmm. they hold them visibly accountable and you can go on it's free to access online 
um, it's called Forest 500, and they show these 500 um, companies mm -hmm. their ranking basically, whether that's to do with beef or soy or pulp and paper. Um, you can see what their ranking is, and I think that pressure yeah. and that that pressure for transparency is mm. should really be pushing for now. Mm -hmm. And are you seeing any companies that are trying to lead that from themselves internally, trying to demonstrate, okay, we're we're going to show you, we're going to be truly transparent with our supply chain, and here's where everything comes from, and you can really find out about it here, and. Yeah. And then did they charge the consumer more for that too? I think um, obviously what we're finding out more and more about now is also this tendency of greenwashing, mm -hmm. which I do think we have to be wary of. Um, I mean, even on a very small local scale, I help now an app called Tree App, yep. which um, has just actually launched last week. Okay, and cool. Description yeah. link below. And uh, <laughs> it's, it's fantastic. I mean, I'm just getting to grips with this. It's newly launched, but um, their big thing is this is not a greenwashing app. You are, I can explain a little bit about it briefly, but basically on this app, this free app, in a, about one minute, you can um, help to plant a tree for free by picking a selected project around the world. And the way that it works is that certain companies sponsor you planting that tree. They're mainly sustainability orientated um, companies and what they get out of it is in order to go in order to do it you go through three slides on the app and they ask a uh, basically like a marketing question so mm -hmm. you might have two photos and they say which photo do you like best and it doesn't take any of your personal information at the end of it it might say 20 percent of uh, the you know people women said they preferred that background of that sustainable coffee brand to that one so mm. in return they get interesting different marketing um, information from an audience that's quite i suppose sustainability sustainably orientated and in return you get to help from anywhere really help plant a tree but their big thing is this idea of greenwashing whereby they're not just planting loads of trees very early on those stay in nurseries until they're in a sapling strong sapling stage Right. Their survival rates far bigger. Um, mm -hmm. I've already gone a little bit of a tangent there, but I would say oh, that's good. Uh, I am seeing companies um, feel the pressure to have a focus on the environment, but I would say still at this stage, it's not enough. Yeah, yeah. There needs to be more pressure. I mean, I guess it's very difficult. There's a bit of a balancing act between pressure from the consumers and faraway countries and governments and yeah, the people living there. They need to make a living and. It has to work for everyone. The best one that I've seen so far would be uh, also based in Sumatra. I'd have to find um, the name of this company, but the story goes that um, a number of years, just a few years ago, actually, um, there was a lady that was, I think she'd come to Sumatra and realized how the severity of the illegal logging, mm -hmm. but always the issue is far more complex than, than what you see first, um, you know, at face value. And what she realized was the reason that certain communities were engaging in this illegal logging was because with, uh, let's take one family, uh, one isolated family, mm -hmm. the income that they're getting is um, fine and they're able to, uh, you know, have a family with the level of income they're getting. Mm -hmm. But the moment that anybody in that family requires any medical care, there's an injury or anything like that, 
there's absolutely no way that this family could pay, so they and they you know fall into and engage in illegal logging. So what this lady did was, I have to remember her name because she deserves to mention her name, but she went back to the States, got a med medical degree, came back out and set up an alternative healthcare system whereby if an entire community could prove that nobody in that entire community was engaging with illegal logging, mm -hmm. they could pay one third of the price for medical care. She would And she would provide it? Yep. And on top of that, if they couldn't, they could also pay instead with um, certain seeds for a reforestation project or manure that would then help. And there was education linked to this as well. And I think it was something like, this could be the wrong statistic, but it was something like in one year, the level of illegal logging went down in this, these areas by 70 or 80%. Wow. And That's remarkable. Yeah, and some like situations like that where it's not about pointing fingers, it's not about saying, oh, those, you know, illegal logging is happening. They're the cause of this. It's always so much more complex. And mm -hmm. I think it's about seeing all the different perspectives and finding a solution that is circular and, and, and takes into account all the different parts of it and the different voices. Yeah, that's really awesome. And I mean, really. Lovely to hear about one person who's decided to take something upon themselves to make a big change and a big difference in the world. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, I'm really interested to hear as well what you think people out there that are listening could maybe take on themselves, the smaller big things that they could do to champion wildlife conservation in the areas close to them or even far away areas. I mean, the world is so connected now, there's a lot you can do. I think the major thing that, that I would say is to... Um, this sounds a little little crazy, but always <laughs> <laughs> feel. So I think the word curious, you always sort of link that to a child, like a curious child, curiosity. Mm -hmm. child. But I think if anyone right now could do anything is to harbor hope in the environment and curiosity. Because if you have curiosity, you want to learn more. If you learn more, then you learn more about an issue. If you learn more about the issue, then you're more able to share what you learned and the conversations happen. And I think that's... <laughs> incredibly power that's incredibly important as well um i live in bristol and this is you know such a green hub here that you can often fall into the trap of um reaching to the converted or being in a slight bubble where everyone already knows what we're talking about but it's mm -hmm. about using what we all have like using your ideas and curiosity and asking questions and reading around on the internet now we have access to papers for free and I would go as far as saying, even right now with everything that's going on, researchers and experts I've found linked to my work and to reach out to people across the globe are actually at home. So this is a really fantastic time to have the chance to speak to people, and, you know, ask questions about papers that have been published. Um, and I think I would say if there's anything that people could do, it would be to feel like they have a part to play and feel like Obviously, there's a fine balance between speaking. I'm always wary of never wanting to preach, but mm. it's such an amazing thing that we have all of this at the tip of our fingers where we can learn about something that we care about, like really working with that curiosity of anything, always asking why, 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 mm. and then using that to strike up conversations across the globe. And I think another thing just leading on from your own power is, Again, I, I wouldn't want to sound preachy, but I think one thing that we can do even from our homes is really thinking about, for example, what we eat. If there was one single thing that we could do, reducing our, you know, meat and dairy intake, 
and I think George Monbiot has an incredible many 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 articles that he you know um, explains the impacts of that mm -hmm. um, and also he's a massive advocate for rewilding which I think is fantastic um, yes and so even, I'll add more about him below yeah so um he's the environmental I think journalist for the Guardian but yeah just from a from a local point of view becoming part of a group or a community um who also share your interests within your city online um anything like that i think is a fantastic platform to come together and, and create ideas and again like you'll be surprised at how much you can do even from the area that you're in whether that's things like encouraging wildlife in bug hotels to um mm -hmm. signing a petition to help um, preserve a certain area, a protected area in your where, wherever you are. I think all of these things do make an impact and finding mm -hmm. that with any sort of level of curiosity is and hope that yeah. things are going to get better, um, mm -hmm. that we can make a change, um, I think are three great things to start with. Awesome, dear. Well, thank you very much for wrapping up on such a lovely note. It's <laughs> been great to listen to your stories and um, all your experiences in Borneo and all the rest of it so thank you very much for coming on today thank you for having me i always have many many stories thanks for listening to the stg talks podcast make sure to check out all the show notes for relevant links from this show Please share and follow SCG Talks on social media and stay tuned for updates from the Unleash and United Nations community. The goal of SDG Talks is to bring you value. So if you want to learn about something specific or have suggestions, please let us know. We look forward to seeing you next time on SDG Talks.